great. Well, take your Bible, please, and turn to the book of John, John 17. Today, we're concluding the True Prayer series. We've been here for now seven weeks, and we get to finish this series off with a capstone of a prayer of Jesus Christ in John 17. And I dare say that this prayer is the true Lord's Prayer. How's that sound? I know we've been in Matthew 6 for a while now, and, and I have nothing wrong, I have no problem with calling Matthew 6 the Lord's Prayer, as it's traditionally been called. But this is an original with me. A more accurate term for that would probably be the Disciples' Prayer, because as we've seen for the last six weeks, Jesus is teaching us how to pray. Pray like this. And he gives us this example prayer that we have gone through. In John 17, you could call this the real Lord's Prayer, because this is a prayer of Jesus to his father in one of the most intense moments of his life that was about to even get more intense. This is a prayer when the last nights of his life, right before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, which would then lead him to the cross, where his final prayers were, were made. And one of the most moving and touching things about this prayer, the true Lord's Prayer, is that you and I are in this prayer. We are in this prayer of Jesus right here in John 17. So there's no better way in my mind to wrap up this whole series that we've been focusing on, prayer, what it means to be seeking God's presence, not just his provision, than to go right into one of the most intense prayers that Jesus ever prayed. And he, and he had us in mind as he went to the cross. This proves it right here. So John 17, and Jesus prays for three specific things here. When you break it down, um, there's three different things he's praying for, and you guessed it, those are going to be the three points that we have. Because if Jesus prays it, we should pray it too. And that's where we're going to be. I've also heard someone describe John 17 like being a mosquito in a nudist colony? Okay, so it's like there's just where to begin, where do, where do we even start? There's just too much here. And, and that's why we're not going to read the entire chapter right out front, because seriously, there is a lot of rich theology in this. Seriously, there is. And I think if we read it straight through, it would almost be too much to handle for a lot of us, myself included. So we're going to break it down one piece at a time. So first of all, let's read verses 1 through 5. What is the first thing that Jesus prays for? First thing. All right, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given them, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. See what I mean by the depth of this and the richness of this prayer already in the first five verses? So what is the first thing that Jesus prays for here? In verse 1, what's the first thing that Jesus is praying for? He's praying for himself. Father, glorify your son. 
All right? So if that's what Jesus is praying for, he's praying for himself here. Our first point today is pray for yourself. Now, I have a lot to unpack about this. And this may come as a surprise to you if you've been here the whole series. Maybe not. In one sense, of course, we're praying for ourselves. We're praying for our daily bread. We're praying for future strength, That just embracing this rhythm of daily dependence. And we know that we are going to be tempted. We're going to need help in that. So, of course, we're praying for ourselves. In another sense, we've kind of been making fun of the whole praying for yourself, and that's the only thing you pray for concept, because it doesn't really fit fully with true prayer. And if I could just for a second, right, we've had a lot of fun with this. Like maybe you thought, well, all right, I'm going to pray, um, I'm going to pray God uh, to, to bless this food, and, and that's one of the only times you pray. Well, and, 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 and you don't even realize as you're praying this prayer that you're like staring at three you know, cheesy gordita crunch wraps with a 64-ounce Baja Blast, and you're asking God to bless that, and he's already told you that, I mean, he could bless that, but your body's a temple, and why don't you just eat broccoli, because there's already a pre-blessing packed into that. Or you could pray for traveling mercies, and we're like, all right, well, you know, what are traveling mercies? Why don't we just, you know, keep our eyes on the road, don't text while we drive, and wear a seatbelt? That's a traveling mercy, Right? Or, you know, God be with us when he's already promised he will never leave us or forsake us. There's so many things that we can pray about ourselves, and we're not even thinking about what we're really saying. We're just doing it as a matter of, of habit. We could go on all day on that, but here's, the, here's where this fits in. Why does Jesus pray for himself, and why should you pray for yourself? What's different about this? We're seeking his presence not just his provision. And true prayer changes us. So how it fits into verse 1 is, Father, Jesus is saying, Father, glorify me so that I may glorify you. You see the difference there? This isn't just about me, and it doesn't just end with me. It's glorify your son that the son may be glorified for you. You granted me authority that I might give eternal life. So what is the reason that Jesus is asking God to glorify himself? It's so that he can glorify his Father. We can easily drift into this false concept of humility in the Christian world, in the Christian life, where we don't think about, oh, I can't, I can't be successful. It's, it's got to be other people. It's got to be... It, it's got to be to someone else and, and not me, when really that's not biblical humility. Humility means you're not seeking prosperity for yourself alone, but it doesn't mean that you're not taking care of yourself. It doesn't mean that you're not seeking prosperity. You can ask God to bless you so that you can use that in return to bless other people. Here's the difference. It's a me for you. It's not just about me. This doesn't end there. It's me for you, for your glory, God. So when Jesus is asking God to do this, there's also a different kind of glory at, at hand here, too. We have, we have to explain that. We need to take a pause here for a second because Jesus is fully human here, and he still is fully human, but he's also God, and he's much different than us, too. So the glory that he has, we can't get confused. It's not quite the same glory as us. There's a lot of, like I said, theologically speaking, richness packed in here. 
Jesus is given authority by the Father to give eternal life to the elect. Jesus is the true God. He is sent by the Father. All this in the first five verses. Jesus glorified God on earth by being the perfect embodiment of God. God in human form, in the flesh. Jesus accomplished his task. That means he lived a sinless life on this earth so that he could be the sinless, perfect, spotless lamb, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Praise God Jesus did all this to glorify the Father. But there's also personal application here for us because we should be praying the way Jesus prays. So we can have the prayer of, God, I need you to bless me here in this situation. I don't know what to say. I, don't know, I, I need wisdom. I don't have the words. The words aren't coming to me. I need, I'm going into a really hard conversation. God, please bless me in this. Be with me in this. I need you in this. See why you're praying for yourself there? You see the difference? It's not, it doesn't just end in you. It's like, God, I need you to help me have this really hard conversation. I need you to give me the words so that it can bring glory to you. It doesn't end with me. It's me for you. That's what Jesus is praying in this prayer, and that's the same kind of prayer that we need to pray. I pray that God will raise up and bless Vertical Church. But it doesn't just stop there at Vertical Church. It's so that Vertical Church can be a lighthouse and be on mission so that Vertical Church can advance the kingdom of God. Me for you. And we pray the same thing in our lives. God, give me a job. Give me a career. Not so that I can live high on the hog, but so that I can have enough to provide, so that I can have enough to even be generous and to bless other people. Now, I know some people are still the skeptical um, the, the skeptical side is like, well, of course, it's still, still pretty convenient for you. Bless you, you know, you get blessed so you can bless others. And, um, well, how do you know, how do you know it's, really, uh, it's really about you or if it's really about God? And I would have to say, honestly, that question, me for you, it's, it's up to you. It's, it's, it's between you and God. Only you in your own heart can know the difference there. I can't tell you the difference. But we do have this concept throughout life, right? Why does a husband, for example, work out, go to the gym, get in shape? Is he doing it just for himself, or is he also doing it for his wife? Is he doing it so he can be in really good shape to, to be a better provider and a, and, a, and a dad? Or is he just doing it so he can be better at you know, boxing or golf or whatever it is? Only he knows. Only he knows. You, you are the only one who can tell what your true motivation is. And ladies, I know you don't always feel like putting on your makeup, you know, doing your hair. There's a lot more there in your whole process than there is for the guys. The guys have it pretty easy. Jump in the shower, throw some putty in, you're good. Ladies have it way harder. And I remember when Julie and I were talking about this when we were first married at one point in time, like how, how much longer it takes the girl to get ready than the guy, how much more the girl has to do. And one of the things Julie even mentioned was, you know, David, girls most of the time, they're not even, they're not even dressing to impress guys. They're dressing to impress other girls. Okay, is that, is that not true? Like, they want to look good so other girls can see how good they look. But they're dressing not for just themselves, but for someone else. And here's the concept Spiritually speaking, for us, ask God to bless you. Yes, God, I need this. It's, that's not a lack of humility. 
Humility is saying, God, I want to do this for you, a me for you. A lot of times we pray as if the point of prayer is to get God on our side. Newsflash, the gospel, he's already on your side. He came to this earth to die for you, to save you, to give you a new life that has meaning and purpose that's way bigger than yourself. Of course he's on your side. So we don't have to pray that way. We have to pray to be with him. It's, it's, the question is, are you on his side? Are you doing it for him? That's what we're called to do. So pray for yourself, but don't let it just end with you. Don't just get dressed up for yourself. Get dressed up to move on to, higher, higher, to a higher calling, to do more, to be more successful for his glory. Now, who else did Jesus pray for? Because there's a lot more verses here. This is point two. Who else did Jesus pray for? He prayed for his friends. Specifically in this passage, he prayed for the disciples. Okay? So in true prayer, we should also be praying for our friends. And this is where Jesus spends the bulk of his time. Really, verses 6 through 19, he's praying for his friends right here. Let's look at verses 6 through 12, though. Start, starting right there in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you do, that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I, no longer, I, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus is talking about Judas there. Judas Iscariot in verse 12, as you can obviously tell. But Jesus is praying for his friends. Who are your friends? Who are your close friends that you are praying for? I hope you have some close Christian friends. The closest correlation to this that I could see in my life, and I think in the lives of a lot of us out here, where you have close Christian friendship is going to be found in life group. It's you investing in a community where you're opening yourself up and you're praying for each other. You're, you're inconveniencing yourself to help someone else. And we all need that at times. So before we look at what he prayed for his friends, because there was a lot there that he prayed for, let me just say a little bit about the importance of Christian friendship. If you take away the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit and the inspired word of God that we have, is there, is there really that many more better gifts that God has given us than companionship and friendship? 
Not many. Not many at all. Christian friendship is so valuable, it's so vital for you to grow spiritually. Maybe you wonder, maybe you've wondered this, why are there so many Christians? They love God, but they're like spiritually almost lifeless. They've just plateaued. They're not doing much. Maybe, maybe you look back at their life, and they used to be involved in church. They used to do more things for, for God and his glory, but they're almost like weary. They're, they're dragged down. They're tired. They're not doing what they used to do for the kingdom. How does that happen to people? One of the primary culprits, you mark it down every single time when a Christian plateaus, and when a Christian just gets burned out, when they fizzle out, and they don't, they don't really be the person who God has called them to be, a lot of times it goes back to this right here. They don't have Christian community. They don't have the kind of friendships that they need to carry them through those dark days. They don't have the kind of Christian friends who will invest in them, who will put their arm around their shoulder and care for them when they really need it. Christian community that you can find in a life group, that you can find when you have two or three, maybe four close Christian friends. They know your weaknesses, you know their struggles, and you're in this together. It's so valuable to have that and to pray for each other. Pastor J.D. Greer, who is pastor of Summit Church in Winston, uh, not in Winston-Salem, but in Raleigh-Durham, he said here, um, things that grow in a secret garden always grow mutants. He's talking about the same concept. If you're just the Lone Ranger Christian always trying to do it your way and on your own, and you're not really in a community where other Christians are holding you accountable and you're, you're having a close friendship with them, eventually something's going to grow wrong. Something's going to go terribly bad. They will grow mutants. Proverbs 18.1 says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desires. He breaks out against all sound judgment. You need close Christian friends. We all need close Christian friends. So how do you get that? Well, I already talked about life groups. You could also just serve, volunteer at the church. You could join a Bible study. There's a lot of ways that you can get involved in community at our church because we make that a priority. Now, that's not to say it's it's easy because it is pretty hard, especially when you throw kids into the picture and work schedules into the picture. It's, it's, a, it's work. It's actually a commitment. It says, I am going to prioritize this. I'm going to make this valuable. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to miss this. I think, uh, I think one of our life groups should actually get a T-shirt, and I'm, I'm still workshopping this idea, but get a T-shirt about life groups that has, like, Professor Charles Xavier, and it says, like, anti-mutant, I don't know, like, preventation or something, prevention. I don't know, you know what I mean? Like, we, we got to get a t-shirt on that. Somebody help me out on that if you could, but I think that would be a great life group t-shirt. We don't want to become spiritual mutants. We want to grow in our relationship with God with each other. Now, here's specifically what Jesus prays for his friends. Verse 11. Look at verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. All right, keep them in your name. He's not praying that God would take them out of the world. Keep them in the world, but keep them in your name. And I have to point out here 
that there's another, I talked about the, the false concept of humility earlier. There's another warped view of Christianity that we can stumble into, and I can see it, it can happen very easily. You can see why it happens. But it's this, I'm going to protect myself and shield myself from the world, so I turn into this isolationist who has this bunker mentality. And you basically remove yourself from the world completely to protect yourself from all the wickedness and the horrible things that are out there that can tempt you, that can affect you, and that can tear your life down. But Jesus makes it very clear that we're, st we're still to be in the world, just not of the world. I've been in those Christian circles in my life before where it's like, all right, we got to make this rule and this rule and this rule and this rule, and it goes on and on and on. You can never make enough rules to keep people isolated from the world. It's impossible, and it doesn't work. You're, you're going to have some major problems when you do that. It's not our job as Christians to legislate morality. It's our mission that God has given us to advance the gospel, right? That's our calling. So we're to crash down the gates of hell, so we should be active and involved reaching people who are lost in the world. And we can't do that if the if the church is just an audience and the church isn't being an army, who we're called to be. I know Christians who have been, they have been scarred even just mentally by that oppressive isolation bunker mentality that some circles of Christianity can have to the point where they're so worried about being holy and following every single last rule to the letter of the law and, and crossing all their T's and dotting all their I's perfectly, that they're, that they're more concerned about that than just loving other people and living on mission for God's glory. And I'm not against holiness, obviously. No, Jesus is clearly, I mean, we're going to see in this passage, there's some, some verses coming, about, coming up about being sanctified. That's right here in this passage, right? But, I mean, we have to be very careful that we don't take good things too far. We don't take modesty to the point where it's never meant to be. We don't take something like the kind of music you listen to to the point where it's, it's, it's impacting us in a negative way. There's a lot of ways that the church can get messed up in this whole point. And we have to be careful to be in the world, but not of the world. And I get why it happens. You want to protect them. But true discipleship is not isolation from the world. It's living like Jesus in the world. David Platt says it this way. Our mission is not to disinfect Christians and put them on a shelf, but to disciple them and put them into service. That's what we have to do. What happens when you remove yourself from the world? Well, worse than, you know, having the same clothing styles that you've had, like, a dozen years ago, and, and way worse than that, not being relevant stylistically, you lose your testimony, and you lose the witness that you could have to the people who need Jesus better. That's what we have to keep at the forefront. What is the mission that he's given us? So are you engaged in, people, in people's lives that don't know Jesus Christ? Are you able to talk with them, or can the only people you talk to be the people who know Jesus Christ. We have to have a different mindset than the world, but we also have to have the urgency 
to reach the world with the light of Jesus Christ. Holiness isn't simply being different. Holiness is being set apart. Look at verse, I left off at verse 12. Look at verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the, wor- in the world, that they may have, they have, I'm sorry, I, I'm, I'm having trouble reading this. I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Jesus wants us in the world, but he doesn't want us to be shaped by the world. He wants us to be sanctified, which is being set apart. We have a different mentality, a different mindset, different agenda, different goal, different purpose than our unsaved and our lost coworkers and our lost family members. But we're still there reaching out to them. So how do you live in the world not become of the world, and still stay separate. We're not talking about the clothes you wear or whatever. We're talking about mindset-wise, mission-wise. How do you stay separate? Well, verse 8 tells you, if you want to back up to verse 8, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Here's the truth. It's right here in the Word of God. This is how you combat becoming worldly. It's not by isolating yourself and making a ton of rules. It's by knowing the truth. The best defense against being affected and scarred and stained by the evil one and all that he throws at you from this world, the best defense is not making a bunker and isolating yourself because eventually your kids are going to get out there and you're going to get out there and you're going to get hit hard by it. The way you combat it is knowing the truth. That's it. It's loving God. When you see that God loved you, that he sent Jesus into this world to die for you, that's how you grow in your love for God. And that's how you say, I don't love the world. I don't love the things that are in the world because God loves me and I love him. That's the defense. Not rulemaking, but loving God. The greatest way to avoid a lie is to know the truth. And your success is not based on how well you isolate yourself, but on how well you know the truth and how well you live out the truth of God's love. I know, moms and dads, you want to protect your kids. I do, too. Of course we do. There's a lot of things that we have to wisely keep away from them, for sure. I'm not saying just throw the wolves at them. But the best strategy for your kids to fight temptation is to teach them the truth of God's word. Show them the love of Jesus Christ, and they will love him back. So pray that they learn to love God, and that's the best defense that they're ever going to have. Jesus prayed this for his friends, to be sanctified, to be set apart in the truth, and to stay on mission, and that's what we should be praying for for our friends, the exact same thing. 
It's not just a prayer for jobs. It's not just prayers against cancer. Of course, we're going to be praying those prayers too. But it's so important that we pray to be set apart from the world, to live on mission for the glory of God, to be motivated and driven by love. Now, there's one more thing that Jesus prays for here in this text. Look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. This is where it gets really good, and I told you this is going to get personal, right? Who, who are the people that are going to believe in Jesus Christ through the teaching of the apostles, right? Because remember, Jesus was talking about his friends, the disciples. Who are the people that hear what is written and take what has been received and then believe on Jesus Christ? Can somebody say it out loud? Who is this? Who are these people? What was that? Believers right now, the church. Okay, this is us. Jesus is praying now for the people who will believe in the future. That's us. He's thinking about us right now. Remember, he's about ready to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about ready to go to the cross. He's prayed for himself. The Father could glorify him is what he's about to do. He's praying for his friends and the disciples because he knows they're going to face a lot. There's a lot coming up there that they're going to have to deal with. And now he is praying for us. Just like we need to pray for the church. Let's read verses 20 through 25. Pick it up, pick it up back in verse 21. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And this is us right here that he's praying this for. He's praying this for us. He had you in mind when he went to the cross. This prayer of, God, of Jesus Christ to God the Father shows you that he cares for you. Shows you that he's thinking about you. You were on his mind. Notice that Jesus doesn't just pray for the world. He doesn't pray for the world here at all, right? He's not praying for the world in this, in this, in this prayer. He's praying for the church. He's praying for the believers in the world. It's not because Jesus doesn't care about the world. Obviously, he cares about the world. He died for us. He died for the sins of the world. He died for all of us who were in the world before we became called out of the world. But Jesus is making it very clear that the hope for the world is resting firmly on our shoulders. It's up to the church. 
We are the hope. We are, we are the ones who have the answer in Jesus Christ. Hope for humanity, hope for a community is found in the Christians that are in that community. We can pray for our country, of course. We can pray for the upstate, absolutely. But when you're praying for that, you need to be praying for the Christians. That God would speak to and strengthen and use the Christians in America. The Christians that are right here in Spartanburg. We need to pray that God will use us and strengthen us. That's the best strategy. Ask God to raise up and strengthen believers. This is like when you're on an airplane, right? And, and, they, and they're telling you what you have to do in case of emergency, in case of a loss of cabin pressure. First thing you got to do is take the air mask and put it on yourself before you help your family member or your friend. And I know we probably all, all had this thought of like, wouldn't I want to help my, my wife before I help myself? That just kind of seems selfish. Well, no, they know that you need to get that oxygen going so you're alert so you can help someone else because you're not going to be of help, any help to anyone if you're weak and your head is light and you, you're just not going to be able to do it. The church is the life raft, okay? We have to be right. We have to have our ducks in a row. We have to know our relationship with God and be walking with God so that we can now reach the lost people. So pray for the church even before you pray for the world. That the believers will point others to Jesus Christ. The church is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. That's the New Testament. That's you and me. Jesus is praying this for you. And I know you can't talk about the church very long without us having these thoughts of, man, the church, though, it's so full of hypocrites. There's so many messed up people in the church, and church life can be so hard and difficult. I know. You think Jesus didn't know that? I mean, Jesus just lived with these disciples for three years. He knows James and John, who he's going to use to build the church. He knows those guys are more concerned about them being number one. I mean, Peter, he's always putting his foot in his mouth. Peter's about ready to deny Jesus Christ. I mean, even 10 years after this, when Peter like, got that right, you know, he confessed it, he wept bitterly, and, he, and he, he got forgiveness. There was repentance, and there was restoration with Jesus, and then he built the church, he preached, he did amazing things, and 10 years later, in Galatians 2, Paul has to rebuke Peter to his face because he's still holding on to some of these, these legalistic tendencies to, uh, to, to favor the Jewish people over the Gentiles. The church has always had brokenness in it. It's because it's filled with people. I mean, we went through the Corinthian series, right? We were there for 16 weeks, and we saw how messed up that church was. The church has sinners because we're in the church. The church is full of messed up people, but that doesn't mean that God isn't going to still use us. He is going to use us, and we are his plan A. The church is a hospital for sinners not a spa for the saved. That's the church. And if you're ever in a church where everyone looks perfectly happy and everything's great and there's no problems ever, just know there's a huge mask over all of that, okay? Because that's not reality. 
And you don't, that, uh, when you're hiding problems, you can't actually help people with their real problems and their real needs. We have to be honest and real about that. But back to the main point, pray for the church. Jesus specifically has two things he prays for the church, for us. Verse 21, look at verse 21 again. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is huge. This is unbelievable. He is praying for unity. That we may be one. And what will unity do? Unity will show the world that we have the love of God. A true sense of unity that's in the church will be such a testimony, such a bright, shining light to people who are fractured and divided and always fighting for their rights. When they see other people serving one another, when they see other people like sacrificing for each other, when they see other people who don't even look the same, they listen to different music, they wear different clothes, they have different backgrounds, they make different amounts of money. All this is totally different about them, but what? They come together and they're unified and they love one another? That's the greatest testimony we have to a lost and dying world. And Jesus is praying that for us that we may have unity. He's praying that for you and for me. And then number two, he's praying that we love Jesus the way that God loves Jesus. Wow. Okay, can we just step back for a second here? Talk about a big expectation. Um, he says there, and I in them, that we would love others like Jesus loves us. I mean, what kind of expectations do you have for your friends? Do you just expect your, your, your friend to become the president of the United States, to be a millionaire, to invent a cure for cancer, and who knows what else? Jesus expects us, and he has a, he has a desire for us he wants us to get to this point where we love each other the same way God loves us. That's incredible. And he's praying that for us. What high expectations he has. Because when we do that, people will know that he's real. That's how people are, will know God's love, is when they see it in us and when they see us loving each other. So, does the world know that God is real by how well I preach, by how amazing you worship, by how many incredible answers to prayer you have, how little beer you drink, how modestly you dress? No, 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 no. The world never sees God's love in any of those things. The way they see God's love is in how we love each other. It's that simple and it's that important. It's really that big of a deal. Christian unity, that we love one another. It's how you love. And I'm not minimizing holiness. Of course not. As you see here, Jesus is praying that you stay sanctified, that you stay set apart from the world. That's a big part of it too. You can't be a testimony if you look just like them and you talk the same way and you live the same way and you have the same goals. You're not, you're not helping them at all. You're living the same way they are. That's not going to help anybody. But if you love the way God has loved you, you love your friends, 
you love the church, and then you even reach somebody who's not even like you and has nothing to offer you. They can't do one blessed thing for you. As a matter of fact, they're running away from you, but you love them anyway. Does that remind you of anybody? Jesus Christ coming after us. He showed that kind of love to us, and we can show that love to others. And we can make a difference in this world. That's why our life groups serve in the community. That's why we can go out there and tutor kids in schools. We can foster children. There's a thousand things that we can do as a church to show love to our community. And when we lose our unity, every single time, mark it down, there's something that's more important to us than Jesus. That's the way we lose our unity. Is we let Maybe it's a good thing that's becoming the enemy of the best thing, and it's getting in the way of our love for Jesus. Look at verse 23 again. Verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you loved me. Jesus says this in John 13.35. John 13.35, a great verse. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is throughout, Jesus is always talking about this. This is throughout the Gospels. It's not how spiritual you sound, it's how much you love each other. How you love, how you forgive, how you forbear, how you serve one another, how you refuse to be divided, that's going to make the difference. So true prayer, true prayer is praying these, these three things. Pray for yourself. It's not a me. It's not about me. It's a me for you. Pray for yourself. Pray for your friends. And pray for the church. The amazing thing about it is we can do all three of those things because of what Jesus did after he prayed this. After he prayed this, he sacrificed his life on the cross. He bled out so that this could actually be a true prayer for us. When we pray a true prayer that is seeking God's presence, not just his provision, we are praying not just to Jesus, but we're praying with Jesus. Do you see that? Do you see that Jesus is praying this for you? He is praying this for you. And I mean, when you stop and think about that, it's so much easier to pray because I'm not just praying at Jesus or to Jesus. I'm praying with Jesus. He's right there alongside me praying the same thing. I'm going to pray what he's praying. So we have to stop just praying thoughtless prayers or repetitive prayers that are just about God coming on our side. He's already on your side. Stop praying to him and start praying with him. In his presence. In his presence. I was thinking about this, and it's like I was, I was, I actually was praying with um, one of the brothers in our church before the service started today. We were just praying together, and, and I told him, like, you know what? Because I've been studying this passage, I said, listen, I'm praying for you, and Jesus is praying for you too. He is the intercessor. Hebrews 7:25. Hebrews 7.25, we talked about this last week. We're going to talk about it again this week. 
Hebrews 7.25, right here on the screen, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he ever lives to make intercession for them. That's what Jesus Christ is doing for you right now. So whatever you're facing in your life, and I know a lot of us, a lot of us are having a good season of life and we're enjoying college football that started, but then there's a lot of us who are going through some really hard things too, all right? We all go through different seasons in our life, and I know there's people in this room who are having some really, really hard trials, and you know what they are. I don't have to, I don't have to say anything. You know exactly what it is. Pray for yourself that you can have the power and the strength to get through that trial to glorify God. Pray for your friends that are going through these trials. Pray for the church to be what it's called to be, to be on mission driven by love. And pray with Jesus. He's already interceding for you. And take comfort in that truth. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father. He's going against the accuser of the brethren, and he is praying you. He's with you. He's going to take you through it. and He's got a plan for you, even in that trial. Let's stand and sing and close our service with just praising a prayer of praise to our Heavenly Father. Till the whole